the answer to that would be no. You do not want to supplement with one amino acid because of the way in which the cycle goes through the cell. You, it would be advisable to supplement with all of the branched chain amino acids, leucine, mm -hmm. isoleucine, and valine. If you were to supplement with leucine alone, it pushes the the way in which leucine is utilized. It's it's an un, it would be unbalanced. So you would ultimately deplete the other branched chain amino acids. This is episode 134 of the Neuro Experience podcast. I'm Louisa. I'm your host. Joining me today is Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. She's a functional medicine physician specializing in muscle-centric medicine. This concept of medicine focuses on the largest organ in the body, skeletal muscle, as the key to longevity. Dr. Lyon's groundbreaking concepts eliminate unwanted body fat and build muscle, allowing for continued metabolism boosts and long-term wellness. The key is to eat the right kinds of protein and enough of them at each meal. This stimulates the body's natural building muscle building process called muscle protein synthesis. Dr. Lyons also promotes exercise as another way to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. More than just physical activity, adults need muscle targeting exercises to ensure long-term health and decreased risk of chronic disease. This episode will inspire you to move your body, lift some heavy weights, and eat more protein. What you thought you knew about muscle is nothing compared to what you will learn in this episode. We begin this episode by referring to muscle being the organ of longevity. We then go into talking about muscle-centric medicine and why you should focus on building muscle instead of focusing on losing fat. Gabrielle believes that the more muscle you have, the more likely you are to live. We talk about high levels of IGF-1 and if this is indeed detrimental to longevity. We talk about BCAAs, especially one component of that, which is leucine. We talk about mTOR. We're going to supplementation. Then, of course, we take a turn and talk about brain health and muscle mass. You want to listen to this if you want to live a high-performing, long life. Without further ado... Let's get into the episode. Neuroscience, neurology, longevity, and beyond. Learn everything you need to know from the best physicians and experts in the world. The Neuro Experience Podcast is a platform to help you understand what the brain is and how it shapes every part of our lives. Every episode comes to you from highly credible sources. I'm Louisa Nicola, medical neuroscientist from Australia, living in New York City. Come and take a neuro experience with me. Gabrielle, welcome to the Neuro Experience Podcast. It's been a long time coming, but I'm so excited to have you on board. Let's get right into it. Let's talk about what it means when you refer to muscle being the organ of longevity. Muscle is the largest organ in the body by weight. And it does so much more metabolically and just for overall health than simply locomotion and exercise. It really is this endocrine organ and the organ of longevity. Mm. So how did you even like get started in this. So let's talk about the journey of undergrad. I know you speak very highly of your mentor during undergrad and, and your postgraduate work. Where did it all start? It was really interesting. I just happened to be fortunate enough to be mentored by one of the world-leading protein experts. And his name is Dr. Donald Lehman. And I 
did my undergraduate at the University of Illinois in vitamin mineral metabolism. And at the time, it was one of the top three nutrition institutions in the world. And because of his mentorship, it really targeted and changed my perspective and thinking, especially as it relates to overall health and well-being. And I've kept that relationship for the last two decades. It's it's really been essential and pivotal in my career and also in my capacity to help other people. And that's, so where are you at right now? So you went to med school and then um, you focused on geriatrics. Is that correct? I went to medical school. Then I did actually, and I think a lot of people don't know this. I did three years at the University of Louisville in psychiatry. Oh, wow. Uh And then, (laughs) which actually allowed for a great framework of understanding of the human mind and really the way in which people perceive challenges and just their perspective on their own health and wellness. Then I did three years of family medicine. Mm-hmm. After that, after I completed that, I did post a uh, postdoc mm-hmm. at Washington University in St. Louis, and that was in nutritional sciences, obesity medicine, and geriatrics. And so where I don't know if you you agree with this, but obviously you've seen a huge shift over the last 10 years with um, people understanding protein, for example, people understanding longevity. I, I think even in the last five years, I would say, not a lot of people really understood this centenarian perspective on life. You know, that with proper health, proper nutrition, you can, you know, have lifestyle interventions to mitigate the onset of certain diseases. Mm-hmm. But we we don't tend to look at the muscle as an organ. We don't tend to think about how muscle plays out in the realm of chronic diseases. And you do a really good, um, you you really are out there doing a lot of, pub, by public education, I mean, you're out there doing a lot of podcasts just like um, we are now. And you're advocating for this link between longevity and muscle mass Um, And you also talk a lot about inflammation. So where do you think we, general population, let's just start with just gen pop, people who are just out there just going to the gym, where are we going wrong when it comes to muscle mass and understanding strength training? This is a really great question. And I like how you point out the aging perspective of muscle. It's interesting because skeletal muscle is one of the tissues that has a and goes through a physiological change as we age. And there are multiple, uh, there are multiple realms at which in which this happened. And one in particular is this physiological change, this sarcopenic change that happens. And that's a decrease in muscle mass and function. And we see a decrease in strength. The importance of maintaining muscle as it relates to longevity really begins in your 30s. There is this change, this physiological nutrient sensing change that happens called anabolic resistance. Essentially, it's the inefficiency of the body to use dietary proteins. The the sensing mechanism requires more of a stimulus. And oftentimes that stimulus can be resistance training compounded with higher quality protein, essentially the amino acids, and in particular, some of the branch chain amino acids, which we'll get to. Where I think that we go wrong, and this is a very important point, is that we train haphazardly. Mm -hmm. 
If you think about the health perspective, people talk a lot about nutrition and then they make gross generalizations about training. Oh, you should stay active. But what does that really mean for the aging population? And by aging, we're always aging. And that that arguably is every day, particularly as our hormones shift. So whether that's in your 30s or 40s, this hormone shift becomes essential to pay attention to as it relates to having very high quality targeted training, in particular resistance training. Mm. See, the amount of like data out there that is probably misleading, you probably hate hearing it. You know, there's a lot of women out there that suggest, oh, I better not do any strength training because I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get bulky. And it's interesting that we still in, you know, 2021, we're still hearing that line because it does take, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it takes a lot of work, strength training, hypertrophy training to really get even one kilo or, or, or should I say two pounds of muscle mass for a female. Absolutely. It's, it's interesting that it's still the, the common perception. And oftentimes we know that perception is inaccurate. However, the more frequently you hear something, the more likely it is to become true in our minds. And it's, it's an interesting phenomenon. You're absolutely right. It, it takes quite a bit of conscious and directed focus to mm. put down muscle and, you know, whether an individual is trained or untrained will determine the amount that they could put on. And it, it also takes quite a bit of discipline as oh, yeah. it relates to building muscle. Yeah. I, um, look, I, I had this problem. I was a triathlete, so I raced for Australia and we know that triathletes are endurance athletes. And I always had this problem where I couldn't put muscle on. Okay. But I was actually increasing my, I was bigger than what I am now. And I was training 40 hours a week. I was, a, let me tell you, I was a lot fitter, but when I say bigger, like my, with the amount of, uh, with the amount of swimming we did, I, my, I just grew up the top with the amount of cycling we did, my legs just grew, but I didn't see a decrease in fat. And you speak a lot about why we should be focusing on building muscle instead of focusing on losing fat. And that's a huge, huge paradigm shift for a lot of, I keep saying women because I know that I hear, and men too, um, who are trying to get lean, but we always hear, I just want to focus on losing fat rather than just building muscle. Absolutely. And that's been the failure of the fat-focused paradigm for decades is that simply we're focusing on the wrong tissue. There is this obsession with adiposity. And really, when you think about the issues that become problems later on in life, for example, metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, these are not issues primarily of fat tissue. Mm. They don't begin there. They actually begin in the skeletal muscle. Skeletal muscle is the initial site for insulin resistance. And the focus still remains on adiposity, which I believe is one reason why it becomes increasingly difficult to treat because we're simply focusing on the wrong tissue. Yeah. Just on that, when it comes to um, glucose and insulin, so I wear um, a CGM and I notice that I can dump, I mean, this is, you know, in 
it's a it's it's a taking a helicopter view of this but the more muscle you have the more glycogen you can dump in and therefore the the better resistance you're going to be is that correct yes when it comes to blood glucose yeah absolutely so skeletal muscle is one of the primary sites for disposal for Mm. glucose and the you know, when you think about glucose disposal, the more skeletal muscle mass you have, the more you have a place to dispose of it. You know, and another interesting aspect is that glucose overall, carbohydrates really need to be thought of as as a meal to meal threshold, which is different. People always think about this concept of how many carbohydrates should I be eating in a 24 hour period? While that is relevant and important because we do think about things in cycles there's something to be said for meal distribution Mm. as it relates to keeping body composition together and and simply anywhere between 25 and 40 grams of carbohydrates per meal would essentially be a a threshold Mm. I mean look it's very individualized it's very dependent on you know how much exercise you're having and what you're doing on a daily basis so I think um what what striked me when you when I first listened to you? So I listened to you on a podcast randomly as I was going for a long drive, and it caught my attention. And that's when I knew, okay, I need to meet this woman. Um, you spoke about the amount of protein that we need to simulate muscle protein synthesis, um, and then you said it's not so much the protein that we need to look at per se, but the amount of leucine in the serving. And just for the audience, leucine is one of the three branched chain, branched chain amino acids. Um, it's an activator of the protein known as mTOR, and which then obviously induces mus- muscle protein synthesis via the S6K. But the thing that I wanted to know is, can we talk about leucine and the importance of it and how much we need per serving? Yeah. Absolutely. Leucine, as you pointed out, is one of the branched chain amino acids, and it is essential, meaning that it only comes from the diet. The body cannot make it, unlike the non-essential amino acids. Mm. This means that when you think about protein, what you're really thinking about are the amino acids. Okay. We eat for amino acids, not protein. It's the amino acids that we need. In particular, leucine. Why is leucine so important? Well, when the conversation turns to longevity and skeletal muscle, leucine is a potent stimulator of mTOR, which is mechanistic target of rapamycin, which is essentially a nutrient sensor and it's a growth promoter. And it is what is responsible for laying down skeletal muscle as it relates to muscle protein synthesis. Now, leucine alone will not lay down skeletal muscle. You require all the amino acids, but it is the same as putting a key in the car and turning the key. And leucine would be the key. So are we getting that in the protein that we eat? And if we are, is it, should we be looking at, let's just say chicken breast, for example, and we want to have, I don't know, 200, we want to try and get 200 grams of protein. Should we be looking at the leucine like content within that, that those grams of protein? Practically speaking, (laughs) I think understanding the concept that high quality protein, animal-based proteins are different than plant-based proteins. Mm -hmm. When we think about the RDA, it's the, the leucine amount is between two and three grams per day, which is entirely too low 
right? That's the minimum amount that you would need for survivability. A more optimal number is eight to nine grams of leucine per day. And what does that look like? It actually looks like two and a half grams of leucine per meal. And I don't want to lose anyone here because typically we don't pick up a a burger and think, oh man, this has two and a half grams of leucine. So a very easy way to navigate that is to understand by ingesting a minimum of 30 grams of high quality dietary protein, you will likely get that minimum leucine requirement to then stimulate mTOR. So there's a minimum and a more optimal number. And a minimum number would say be 1.8 grams of leucine and roughly, you know, to 1.8 to 2.5. And you're looking at a minimum of 30 grams of high quality dietary protein. If people want to think about what that is. So is there a timing aspect of this as well? We hear about the anabolic stage of when you're doing a, let's just say we go out and we do a huge leg workout. Are we supposed to be, I wouldn't say supposed to be, let's, let's reframe that. Should we be ingesting that leucine content within a 20 minute time frame of doing um, strength training? The first answer I would say would be why not? Okay. Post training, why not when there is the most amount of blood flow? As it relates to the studies in aging, what we found is that followed with resistance training, a bolus of protein can actually bring the physiological functions up to a youthful level. When we think about aging, we often think about anabolic resistance. What anabolic resistance really is, is this inefficiency of protein usage and quite possibly sensing. If an individual does resistance training and then follows that up with protein, so you combine resistance training and amino acids, we see a more youthful response. Essentially, 65-year-old muscle can look like 25-year-old muscle as it relates to the response patterning. I would love for you to really tell the audience, like, what would be an uh, what would it look like, okay, if somebody says to you, I want to put on five, let's, five pounds of muscle mass? If somebody said this to you and they are, let's say, uh, take a 35-year-old female, what's the advice you would give her? Because I think there's a lot of misleading advice. We, And you talk a lot about evidence-based medicine as well, which I love. You, you bring all of your insights. They're not your opinions. They're, they're from peer-reviewed, you know, you go out there, you do the research, you really do try. (laughs) And you mentioned, you've mentioned minimizing bias, but you also, I I believe I heard you say once in a podcast that you are very biased towards your opinions. And, you know, there's a huge thing in uh, clinical epidemiology when we talk about that, but that's another conversation. Why are we to get, like, I just hate, like I said, it goes back to my previous comment where I say, I hear females say, I don't want to come. I've got a lot of friends that I want, I want them to come into the gym with me because like strength training is not my forte, but, and I get, I I get bored doing it, but I know I have to do it. So I'm trying to get my friends to do it with me. And they're like, no, I don't want to pick up weights. I'm scared that I'm like, after one session, they're scared they're going to put on muscle mass. So what does it look realistically if a 35 year old female wants to gain five pounds of muscle? Number one, she's going to have to really target her training in. Typically we do what we've become habituated in and that is often cardio, excess mm-hmm. cardio, under eating. That that becomes very difficult to put on any kind of skeletal muscle or build a different kind of physique. 
Number one, you have to get a good training program down, which includes resistance, exercise, and not necessarily lightweights. It, it really should be, you know, and, and there's data both ways. You know, Stu Phillips at McMaster University, some of his data suggests that you can do lighter weights as long as you're going to fatigue. And of course, we can say that volume matters. I think the other component of that is also loading the body appropriately. And that takes someone who strategically designs a program for you. Yeah. And another thing to, to realize is that the more untrained you are, the more likely you're going to be able to put on skeletal muscle, especially when you combine that with proper nutrition. It does require a bit of total increase in calories to lay down skeletal muscle. Yeah, you're not it, going it, to build it, muscle without proper nutrition. No, and you you actually need um, more ca- uh, more of a caloric load. It would be very difficult to gain skeletal muscle in a caloric deficit. So making sure, bringing it back to your point, making sure that individuals have a very well-designed resistance program in addition to high-quality protein and understanding that there are ways to optimize protein intake. And of course, rest and recovery are big. I, I want to mention what you said earlier. I think that it's very important that we all do have our bias, mm. but it's of intellectual integrity to say when these are our opinions versus these are facts. And I, and I, I really believe strongly about that. So when you talk about high quality protein, should we be supplementing with leucine if we're like hell bent on putting on muscle? I would. The answer to that would be no. You do not want to supplement with one amino acid because of the way in which the cycle goes through the cell. You, it would be advisable to supplement with all of the branched chain amino acids, leucine, mm-hmm. isoleucine, and valine. If you were to supplement with leucine alone, it pushes the the way in which leucine is utilized. It's it's an un, it would be unbalanced. So you would ultimately deplete the other branched-chain amino acids. Mm. I want to. I have a question about IGF one, and this question, it, it and this area really upsets me because I believe it is extremely confused. So there is a common belief that high IGF one is bad for longevity, and I think that's based on a false premise. However, let's just say that we agree with what mainstream medicine and media says when it tells us that high IGF-1 is bad for longevity. What would be the best protocol to build lean muscle mass without sacrificing longevity? I think the first thing that we have to realize is that (laughs) muscle mass Mm -hmm. is a promoter of longevity. Okay, that's the first thing. And then the second thing is if IGF-1 was bad, right? Then all young men and young women in their 20s, when their IGF-1 is the highest, somehow would be in the worst health. Mm. But that's actually not what we see. The Mm. concept that a higher IGF-1, and, you know, really that number hasn't even been defined. I mean, I've done blood work for on patients for 15 years. What, What do we determine high? I rarely see it overtly out of range. And the only times often that I see it out of range are in obesity or if someone is just coming off training. Yeah. Um, So I think that that is very misleading. The concept that IGF-1 would be an issue is is, um, 
doesn't quite make any sense because if you take a look at the life cycle, IGF-1 is naturally highest when we're younger. Mm. Yeah. it's uh, And there's even a study on dementia and IGF-1, and it shows that the risk of dementia goes down lower and lower as IGF levels get higher and higher. So, um, but there's this, you know, there's obviously this gray area where there's science and then there's social media where I see a lot of people talking about and arguing the fact that um, high IGF-1 is is bad, especially when it comes to longevity and health. So that, right. I'm so and happy that you cleared Absolutely. That and then also by what mechanism of action. So this mm-hmm. actually, what I think underpins this is this misconception that protein causes cancer. So there are nutrition narratives that really want to demonize animal-based products. Oh, yes. And, you know, it was, it's interesting because the first decade of my career, we I never even thought twice about this. There was no deep conversation about um, an anti-animal narrative. And it, it's something that I would say is relatively new to the mainstream, which is so interesting as a clinician from um, my perspective, is that all of a sudden, really within the last eight years or so, there's a tremendous push of this anti-animal narrative, this concept that IGF-1 would be bad. You know, this is the, you know, really more pro-vegan groups that talk about this, but not necessarily in medicine. It's it's yeah. not, you know, because it, it doesn't make sense. And then this concept, I think at the root of that is that People talk about protein and its effect on cancer, but the reality is it's much more dangerous to be obese. Mm -hmm. It's much more dangerous to be constantly feeding and overfeeding carbohydrates. Mm. Yeah, there's this, there is a very strong group out there of activists who are anti um, animal products. And this is not just for the environmental issues and the love of animals, because I understand that aspect. But then there's a, there's a, a very strong group of, there's, you know, a lot of MDs, um, especially in the area of neurology. I've actually got hmm. um, two friends who are um, focused on Alzheimer's disease and Alzheimer's disease prevention, and they're vegans. And they talk about how beneficial it is to adopt a vegan lifestyle for brain health. Um, and then I talked to other people. I've also had um, Paul Saladino on the podcasting and I know you've been on his and he's on the other extreme, you know, only meat. And in, you know, I'm so, I, I get, I can only imagine how everybody else feels in the world who's not really heavy <laughs> in science and medicine. Right, if I'm already, right. if I'm already struggling, it's just so, uh, it's either misunderstood or there's just is just too much going on to understand what path to take because then you can talk about brain health but you just introduced cancer and longevity and I know the best people when it comes to longevity the best physicians in the world who are advocating for that yourself being one of them are pro animal products and, so, and you know it's interesting you talk about brain health so part of my training at WashU was geriatrics that was my mm-hmm. clinical responsibility so that means i would be considered an expert in individuals over 65 and up mm-hmm. the aging individual and i will tell you part of my clinical research was also doing brain imaging fmri mm-hmm. brain imaging of obese individuals in their midlife mm-hmm. and then i ran a, bla- a brain clinic a memory and aging clinic for 2 years 
as part of my fellowship responsibilities. Mm-hmm. What I can tell you is that midlife obesity has a huge impact on later life dementia, number one. At the core of Alzheimer's disease, dementia, and aging, we have to think about body composition. And this is where the concept of being under muscles, under muscled really comes in. Mm. It's not about being over fat. It is about being under muscled and it is about metabolic dysfunction. So that's one aspect of brain aging. And, you know, it's devastating to see. And that's actually where the concept of muscle-centric medicine was born. It was because it was so personally devastating to see these people over and over and over again, whether they were obese midlife or they were, you know, I worked in a nursing home and, you know, you see at the end of the day, when everyone is arguing about longevity, I can tell you the difference between the last five years of your life, how you want to live. If you want to live to 105 crippled in a bed, or if you want to live to hundred with healthy skeletal muscle and mobility and on your own, there are two very set, two very different ways to live. Mm. So before you move on to the second point, I just want to ask two questions. First is you talk about uh, midlife obesity. When you say midlife, are we talking 50? It could even be earlier. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, the the studies with with the patients that I saw, I mean, they were younger than 50. And define obesity. Is that based on the amount of body fat? Like, is that a body fat percentage? It is a body fat percentage and there are certain standards but it is also about excess weight. Mm. So, you know, we talk about a BMI of greater than 30 as it relates to obesity, but of course that doesn't take into account skeletal muscle, but that, you know, that's when you look at the criteria, inclusion, exclusion criteria for studies, that is what that would be defined as. Okay. And then the second question is my parents, my dad will be 70 next year, my mom, 67. And the basis of all of our arguments revolve around exercise. Yeah. I'm talking like we have severe, like it's it's come to the point where it's like becoming a, a very big issue because they don't understand obviously where I'm coming from. But when I tell them that, you know, they need to pick up weights. So it, it gets harder. Like if my parents started in their forties, for example, it would be a lot easier for them now to, you know, be more mobile and to gain more of a perspective on exercise, but can, is there, is there ever a time where it's just too late to start strength training? Like they, they can start right at their age. Absolutely. It's never too late. It's never too late for improvement. And you know, what else is really interesting about what you said is it's habitual. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're talking about the hard ingrained beliefs of your, you know, 70 year old father or 65 year old mother. What's so interesting is this is the population that the social media misses. Mm. Right now, everybody is arguing on either the younger extreme, they're doing the cleanses or they're 20 and they've, you know, are going vegan <laughs> or they're in their 40s and 50s and everyone should be just eating meat and being paleo and strength training. And it's so interesting that the conversation, it's almost as if individuals are fighting amongst themselves. Mm. But who we really need to help are the aging population that are completely ignored from the the conversation. Mm. And it becomes interesting because if we can shift to a more balanced conversation and reach the people that really need it, 
And listen, arguably everybody needs it, but people like your parents, why should they spend another five years or you spend another five years trying to convince them of something that we know is essentially good for them? Mm. Mm -hmm. And part of it is because they are underrepresented individuals. You know, they're not educated in the way or they don't have access or they're just not habitually interested in social media. And while all of us are arguing about it, we're actually missing the point of by trying to negotiate and navigate with our parents, we can ultimately change the way that they age. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe you should um, jump on a call with them <laughs> to save me from arguing. Um, what's it's, the, never, it's never too late to start, but the earlier yeah. you start, the better, truly. Well, when it comes to chronic inflammation, I, I think that uh, that is the first and foremost start of many chronic and debilitating diseases. We look at um, pathological findings of Alzheimer's disease. We know that obviously it's a phosphorylation of tau protein, which can be somewhat correlated to um, starting with chronic inflammation. That's just one aspect, but chronic inflammation also plays a role in obesity and and muscle mass and obviously atrophy. So do you think that there is reason to believe that every day we should be focusing on minimizing inflammation? I think that that is a long-term conversation. Yes, Mm. absolutely. But I think as it relates to inflammation, for example, training would be considered an inflammatory state, but there has to be a counterbalance. Walking around with excess obesity creates and well can create low-grade inflammation. And that really over a period of time becomes very challenging because the more obese you are, at times this become there, there become it becomes more difficult to lay down skeletal muscle and stimulate mm. skeletal muscle. It really is, it's almost as if you're swimming upstream. Mm. It is very important to mitigate and control the aspects of wellness that you can. And as it relates to reducing inflammation, this really does come from reducing body fat and correcting body composition. Okay. Yeah. I've, um, I've been obsessed with that, you know, with the whole notion of cold shock proteins, for example, Mm -hmm. in terms of not just neurogenesis and brain health, but also minimizing inflammation. Yes. Um, all right. You're a big fan of red meat, correct? I am. I am. <laughs> Loud and proud. So am I. Look, I'm Greek, so <laughs> I don't have a choice. Um, but you've said previously that the number one thing that people should do is eat more red meat. Now, mm. I'm sure you've had people attacking you for that comment. I don't know if you have, but I'm sure you've yeah, you, somewhere course. in your career you've had somebody, <laughs> a, a, an yeah. activist, come and attack you for that. Yeah, of course. Why red meat over fish, for example? It is a nutrient-dense matrix. It has creatine. It has bioavailable iron, selenium, B vitamins. It's just so nutrient-dense. And we've been eating it for 2 million years. Should we be focusing on the way the meat is? Like, should we be getting Belcampo meat or, or should we be looking at the type of meat in terms of should we get organic or grass-fed or is it just meat is meat? I think that there are a couple conversations surrounding that. Number one, I don't think it should be a barrier of entry. Mm. Cost of organic meat can be very expensive for people. 
-hmm. I would much rather have them have whatever they can afford versus eating a Twinkie. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. Meat, red meat, whether it's organic or not, should not be a, um, a barrier to entry cost. Mm -hmm. Now, I do think that there's aspects that are important, like the regenerative aspects of agriculture. And if you can afford it, then I think that pasture raised and those that are raised consciously, very important. Okay. The other aspect is if we were to just look at the nutrient differences, there are not tremendous amount of nutrient differences between organic and conventional. And I think that is important to point out. Again, this is where opinion comes in versus um, science. And people really have this strong opinion that they should only be eating organic. And while that is opinion, and listen, we at home eat organic. I can't say that there is a vast difference in the nutrient profile between organic and conventionally raised. Because the the majority of cattle are raised in pasture. Mm. The majority are, of cattle are not raised in, in feedlots. Mm -hmm. When you talk about meat, are you talking, do you have um, nose to tail? Are you doing organ meat as well? Oh, we do. Yeah. Oh, so you're doing we liver. Do. Um, we do liver. Yep. Wow. Brains? Oh, gosh, no. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I am eight months pregnant. That is definitely not happening. Oh, wow. Wow. Well, yeah, no. that's, that's amazing. Um, all right. I want to switch the gears now and talk about, uh, brain health and, uh, because before moving into the athletic space, which is where I am now, I was involved in Alzheimer's disease, mm. um, and, uh, lifestyle interventions. And when I looked at, there were so many different articles and studies that I read on the relationship between brain health and the muscle mass of your quadriceps, it was staggering. So, mm. um, what happens in terms of like specific, you, you mentioned it earlier, cognitive function and cognitive decline when it comes to strength training, but is there a, a direct correlation between muscle mass and memory function that you saw with your fMRI studies? I did. So the, the wider the waistline, the, the lower the overall brain volume. And that has been reproduced in multiple other studies. It, you can easily do a literature review search on that. Yes, body composition, adiposity, wide waistline, excess visceral fat has low. Many individuals will have lower brain volume. They have. Um, I'll I'll just share with you what I have found in the research that we were doing at WashU is that there was an aspect of executive functioning, which is numbers and also impulse control, mm. with obesity. And that's, of course, not to say that everybody who struggles with obesity would have these parameters, but this is what I did see in my time at WashU doing brain studies when we were on the metabolic ward. We did um, cognitive testing, a full battery of cognitive tests, and, and that's what we found. Do you have a favorite supplement when it comes to protein? Well, I work with a company called First Form, and mm. they are amazing. Mm -hmm. As it relates, is that to, Andy Andy Frisella? Yep, yeah, yep. that is Andy Andy and Sal's company. Yep. It's amazing, and mm -hmm. um, what I love about their products is you can, if you are vegan or vegetarian, you can have a well balanced amino acid profile of a, a vegan shake, or you can do a whey protein, which you know I um, am much more inclined to recommend whey protein. Mm. I'm having um, I'm having a bit of 
honey protein and I'm also doing um, the vegan protein. Just like mix and match. Um, Well, look, what's the – your whole thesis is centered around uh, muscle as medicine and longevity. Mm -hmm. What are your lasting – if you could give advice to anybody after the end of this podcast to go and adopt a more muscle-centric lifestyle, what would that be? The first strategy that I would say is making sure that you're getting a minimum of 30 grams per meal. And if you want to say that's three times a day, that would be a great starting point. And that's a a wonderful place to start is, Mm -hmm. you know, to control body composition, you do have to account for carbohydrates and you do have to account for total caloric load. 30 grams per meal, three times a day is a great starting point. Then you can evolve that to more optimal numbers where, say, for example, you don't want to eat multiple times a day and you want to build up some mass. The way to do that would actually be to increase the protein per meal to roughly 45 to 50 grams. Wow. You could do that if you did that two meals a day. And then perhaps if you had a, a smaller meal of protein midday, that would absolutely suffice. But it's, it is nuanced in the way that you change the dosing. So you go from a 30 gram dose, which is minimal stimulation, which would be good for maintenance and weight loss and body composition to move towards more optimization and actually with the goal of putting down skeletal muscle. And that would be increasing the protein pulsing of the diet, which would be 45 to 50 grams. Okay. Well, look, everything that you provided us in here is absolutely wonderful. And I know that people are going to want to hear more about you. Where can they find you? I am very active on Instagram, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, L-Y-O-N. They can find me on YouTube with the same name. I do a ton of education with my mentor. We put up a video oh, amazing. every week. Yep. And that's all free. We do a video a week. I have a newsletter that has very curated information. I won't spam you guys. It's really educational purposes only. On my website at Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, I have a free protocol and they can sign up for a few of the upcoming courses that I'll be putting on, which are protein pulsing and and protein cycling. So that's where they can find me. Yeah, I'm going to link everything at the end of this um, episode, but Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, thank you so much for being part of the Neuro Experience podcast. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me.